Don't sell yourself short, Mark. Oh, okay. Oh, is that a short joke? <laughs> Still taller than you there, cupcake. <laughs> How dare you? Yes. Okay. It's, it's going to come to fisticuffs here. Hi, Vampire Insiders. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing vampires on film. Joanne, Christina, and I watched a bunch of vampire movies over the last several weeks, and we're ready to compare and contrast. We are asking, what did the vampires represent? What did the films tell us about the cultural values in the times they were filmed? And most importantly, are they any good? Please join us on Twitter at vampire underscore insider for fun interaction and podcast updates. Thanks for coming to listen each week. And if you do like us, please share us with a friend. Hello, Christina LaRusso. Hello, Joni Palumbo. Hi, Mark Snedeker. How are you? I'm super duper. Hey, Mark. Hey, Joanne. I have to say that I am impressed with the way that the social media has been going. You and Mark are doing a fantastic job. Mark has some kind of weird esoteric things that he posts. Let's be honest. I've taken my foot off the gas a little bit because Joni's doing great. So like I'll post a joke once every couple of days and let her handle all the I know. all the stuff that actually generates engagement. And Joanne, you have been doing a great job with the polls. I'm having a lot of fun doing the polls, guys. I'm not going to lie. It's really been a, a, you know, a challenge. And every time we get a new follower, I get overly excited because I feel like it's just our little baby and it's growing and, and our little podcast is doing quite nicely and I'm proud of us. And Joanne, would you bring us up to date on our polls? Well, Christina, we have four of them as we're recording right now that are wrapping up. They're the TV vampire ones. So we don't have results for that. But the first round of TV vampires concluded with, of course, Damon Salvatore winning uh, Elena Gilbert. They're both Vampire Diaries. And then True Blood, our winner was for the men, Eric Northman. Yes, of no course surprise. it was. Of course it was. And then literally by a nose, 31% to 30% of the vote uh, between Jessica Hamby and Pam. Pam eked it out for the win. Ooh, Pam, I'm surprised. I loved uh, the queen, Sophie-Anne. I think she was gorgeous and actually just found out, FYI, Alexander and Evan Rachel Wood, they dated in real life. They did it, probably. They probably that did it. Oh, it's so, so hot. So, Joni, you're so good that at these. vampire porn I would have rather watched than Vampiros Lesbos. I, you, I yeah, we've got some Vampiros Lesbos coming later in this episode. So, Joni, you're so good at these. I'm going to say you were born for the poll. That's not the first time I've heard someone I say bet that it's not. Mark. But here is the one that we really got a lot of engagement on, and that is A Discovery of Witches. But finishing up momentarily, if not already by now, I, I'm shocked and amazed. I did not know that that show has the intense fan base that it has. And these fans are excellent. They're engaging, they're interacting, and they're fun. And I'm like loving these people. They're great. I <laughs> was thinking, well, what are we going to do when, cause it's seven and seven and done for the first season of interview. 
And I thought to myself, well, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So maybe what we're going to do is do a little bit of a deeper dive into a discovery of witches because we haven't talked about it yet. You have to you have to watch that show. That is one that I actually do watch and I love it. And Matthew played by Matthew Good is to me very, very hot. So if, when it comes down to the finals and if it's like Matthew versus Eric Northman, that's a tough one for me. I, you know, in my mind, because I'm such a big Ian Summerholder, Damon Salvatore worshiper, I'm like, he's got this on lock. Maybe a little worried about Eric Northman, but because of my lack of knowledge about Discovery of Witches, I had no idea about this Matthew guy. We have not seen a blowout like this. He's at, last time I looked, 95% of the votes were for him. I don't know who he is, but he has my attention now. So. He is a compelling vampire and he's urbane and he's sexy he, AF. I don't know. He looks like a cross between me and Jared Kushner. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how that turned into hot, but whatever. Here we are. So everyone, let's jump into what we are going to talk about here today, which is the background of the vampire in film. Vampires have a long and storied tradition in film. In fact, in 1896, there was, I mean, 1896. There were barely movies. Let that sink in. Uh, There was a short film titled The House of the Devil. It was a French silent film, and it portrayed what is described as a vampiric Mephistopheles. I'm pretty sure I lived there junior year, so I'm familiar. And that creature transformed from a bat to a devil um it was really a pantomime sketch was it vaudevillian almost right like panto yeah and it tells the story of an encounter with the devil and various phantoms and stuff yeah and the film's depiction of a few of a human transforming into a bat led some viewers to kind of label the work as the first vampire film. Now, yeah. whether or not it is, who knows, but this is what, you know, some critics have come to understand it to be. So yeah. this is probably the first movie some of these people have ever seen. How many do you think, like, got freaked out? Or did they have enough special effects on stage that would have prepared them for this? Like, watch a guy turn on turn into a bat on film? Doesn't that freak you out? Even though it's poorly done, you have no, meth- you know, no basis for comparison. Like, do you think they freaked them out? It was only poorly done in our eyes. That's what I'm saying. So for them, I mean, would they be like, fuck, how'd they do that? I think about that a lot. I think about how audiences experience new things, right? And this would be new. However, we have to remember that in the world existed at that time, 1896, it's still a world that is enraptured by the idea of miraculous things being able to happen. Yes, science has happened. And yes, we've been through the scientific revolution. I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the first subjects of what may be a horror film focuses on an encounter with phantoms and the devil, right? right? So, So they're still very steeped in... Uh, it's not really paranormal, but in the spiritual spiritual and the the mysterious, right? Also on stage, they would have been seeing things like magicians. They would have been seeing sleight of hand. They would, you know, and that can trick people. There is a part of us. And I think that that lives on to now. I mean, why are we talking about vampires at all? It's because we enjoy being afraid. We enjoy having ourselves kind of go, well, maybe maybe the mysterious can happen. I believe in all of this stuff. And 
Christina and I today watched a YouTube video of a new possible, you know, UFO sighting. And I'm, I'm hoping that it's real. Like, take me away. Get me out of this place. Like, well, like turn me into a vampire. Bring me up. I don't care. Just, I need a change. But here's the problem, Joni. For every E.T. where you come back wearing a cool white uniform and you're hugging the giant aliens and stuff, there's mm-hmm. also the Twilight episode where they're like, yeah, the book is called How to Serve Humans. Oh, no, it's a cookbook. No, and I get that, Mark. But, you know, what I was saying to Christina, like, how do we know, if, you know, what this person was showing us was real or things that we've been led to believe are real about, you know, another life force. If there is another life force and they are intelligent enough to make these, you know, flying machines maybe they have a cure for cancer. Maybe they have a cure for AIDS. Maybe they, they, you know, we don't know. And they can also be sizing us up for Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. So I kind of want to know. Yeah. My cautionary tale is let's just think about it in terms of history. And Christina, I'm sure is well aware of this. What happens when a technologically superior civilization comes in contact with a more primitive situation. Oh, we'll be colonized. They will murder most of us. Yeah, how did that work out for any indigenous people? They will kill all of us. Yes. Or not all of us. They will... Just enough of us to keep things running. And they will force us to uh, assimilate into whatever their culture is. Do their bidding, whatever. But don't you think that if if they... could do that to us they would have already I well no yeah because they haven't gotten here yet this the universe is an unimaginably enormous place they were five thousand feet above an airplane yeah they they're were, here they, yeah. if they if so yes yeah, so that is what would happen they would colonize us and we would be whatever and same if there were a lot of supernatural creatures right if there were really vampires they could take us out and you know herd us into giant pens and they could just come and feed on us at leisure All right, so after that first short film, three minutes worth of film, in 1913, prior to World War I, you get The Vampire, which was directed by Robert Vignola. It is an American silent film based on the 1897 poem of the same name by Rudyard Kipling, and it features a femme fatale version of a vampire. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. And her name was Sybil. Harold Brentwell moves to the city for a new job and meets meets Sybil, an adventuress. Harold is totally fascinated by Sybil and forgets his fiance Helen, but actually Sybil is a vampire who is going to ruin his life. He soon loses his job and becomes an alcoholic. He's abandoned by the vampire, desperate and alone. Harold goes to the theater and watches the vampire dance, depicting a man dominated by a beautiful woman who eventually takes his life, putting the bite on him. Thus, Harold understands his weakness and tries to redeem himself. But that sounds a lot like Théâtre des Vampires. Yeah. Right? From uh, the Vampire Chronicles. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. I definitely like the idea of, you know, him introducing a femme fatale vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it is really thought provoking. The first I'm hearing of it about, you know, the, the story behind it, um, that, that he's able to understand and recognize his weaknesses yeah i i don't know i don't know too much about that period of time in this age this is an american film america is very concerned with masculinity and 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 masculinity being a positive influence but they are also hyper 
aware of the fact that alcohol is kind of a demon. And in this case, I feel like the female vampire is an allegory for temptation. Yeah. And you get, because of course, as you're historically in this time frame, you're heading into the period where they're advocating for prohibition. Um, and this is because women's leagues are saying, you know, alcoholism is the demon. You, you Men are going to taverns. They're spending their paychecks. They're drunk. They're being abusive that's, to their yeah, wives. See, that's really the thing, because of course, they're the victims of, you know, a drunken behavior more than anyone else. Right. So I understand that. Right. They are, they, and this Makes was like almost, I'm looking at this film and I'm saying to myself, is this some kind of like pro prohibition thing? It Could it be? I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just spitballing now. Could it be like something sexual though? Well, it's definitely something sexual, right? Okay. So there's a couple of things happening here. Here, here's a guy who moves to the city. So how are you? Oh, keep, that's always a mistake. How are you going to keep him down on the farm when they've seen Paris, which right. is, which comes after the war. Right. But this is, this is a thing. So here's a guy who moves from the country to the city and then he encounters this woman who is... Is he working for the man both night and day? He is definitely working for the man. <laughs> it, he encounters this woman who is sexually a libertine in conjunction with this sexually... Aggressive. Aggressive or assertive woman, he also becomes an alcoholic. So I think the allegory here yeah. is really alcoholism. And I think that ultimately you can look at this film and say that this is sort of propaganda yeah. for prohibitionists. Prohibitionists. Fuck you, Carrie Nation. So 1922 comes Nosferatu, and we all watch this movie. So, Joanne, give us your hot take on Nosferatu. First of all, I have never watched a silent film, and I'm never going to again. I understand that this one, you know, they, they played that organ music over it. Horrendous. The music just killed me. I couldn't stop laughing at their facial expressions. Just so over the top. And again, this just could be because I've never seen a silent film, so I really have nothing to relate that to if that's how they are. In all of them. Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. Great subtitle. Is it subtitle? It was... I'm putting that on my business card. Mark Snedeker, (laughs) A Symphony of Horror. (laughs) (laughs) A 1922 silent German expressionist horror film directed by F.W. Murnau and starring Max Schreck as they call him... Originally, because this was an unauthorized version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and it was not approved. They, the family did not right. give approval for this. So they just went and said, well, we're going to make this movie about Dracula. But we're going to call him Count Orlock. Yeah. You know, Count Orlock. <laughs> so Which they, is, they, by the way, an Orlock is just that little round metal thing where you put your oars on a rowboat. <laughs> so it's kind of a weird name to give somebody. All right. So anyway, he they made this film. And now when we watched it, they've changed the the changed cards. It back. And so they, it says Dracula. And because now I think it's public domain, it's public domain, which it's is how I listened know. to the original Bram Stoker's Dracula novel for free on Audible, by mm-hmm. the way, if you're, yeah. any of you are interested, you're interested in go and listen to it. If you want to hear some good sexism, there you go. All right. So this film was definitely... A lot of overacting. It's a silent film. They have to so do everything. kind of normal for yeah. that? Oh, it's 100% oh, yeah. normal. Yeah, and, yeah. And that, they overact and, a lot. Yeah, and that kind of hurdy-gurdy, weird soundtrack stuff. 
that's also super normal. We heard the organ music and as a soundtrack. What they had it as was somebody in the theater. Oh yeah, they're live live streaming this. And the shit. orchestra yeah. was you know like the organist was playing. Is it filmed like it's always daytime because it was in black and white? Is that what what's going on? Because he's running around in the daytime carrying that coffin on his shoulders. Right? It's, it looked like it was daytime. Yeah, but it's meant to be night. Yeah. I think it's okay, just because right. the technology is such shit that they couldn't yeah. possibly show nighttime without it just looking like a big, um, you know, black screen. Well, yeah. No, and then that's kind of what I figured. And, like, it, it, you know, watching it, it really made me think, like, could you imagine if you, you know, transported somebody from, you know, 1922 who, you know, went to Nazi go see Nosferatu in the movie theater and thought that this was like, you know, the greatest thing ever. Like, look at this. And then they come and they watch, you know, one of our movies from 2022 with all the special effects and their heads would explode. Yeah. The bells and whistles that we have, like, could you imagine somebody's reaction to it? Like mine was like the opposite of it. I was just like, I sat there. I'm like, like, is it over? (laughs) But the movie (laughs) movie itself, I got it. You know, I, once I got over my initial, like laughing at their weird, things that they were doing and like the lady walking on her tippy toes all the time. But you're going to see a lot of that overreact overacting. First of all, because these are primarily stage actors, right? There's not a lot of work in film at this point. Some, but these people came from stage acting and they have, you know, real heavy eye makeup. Mm-hmm. So you can see their eyes, you know, if, if they're surprised, you need to see their eye eyebrows shoot up to heaven. You if know? they're happy, they need to be smiling with all their teeth. There was one scene where the wife, I can't remember her name. Well, they called her something. Nina. She she looked like she was having an orgasm. Well, like it oh, was just, let me tell she you. Was, she was reading the book because she was verklempt. She was. Yeah. She, she had she the touch of the vapors. get over it. Mm-mm. Yeah. So I'm our resident Bram Stoker's Dracula expert. It actually does a pretty decent job of following the book it's not allowed to follow. Jonathan Harker is hired and brought from London to Transylvania to help Count Dracula purchase a home. He's in a, He's a young lawyer. He's just starting out. So he's got to go and help this guy, you know, Purchase the house, arrange for transportation, get all his servants there, blah, blah, blah. Renfield, the creepy little Christopher Lloyd-looking guy. In Nosferatu. So what he does is he says, Jonathan Harker, you've <laughs> got to go to Dracula's castle. Hook it oak. So he so Jonathan Harker's like, Yeah, I, I need the I need the business, whatever. I'm on my way to Transylvania. Although in the movie, they may only go as far as like Turkey or something. I'm not sure. So he goes there and he's imprisoned, basically. He's helping Dracula, but then he keeps finding out that, you know. Dracula might not be, you know, on the up and up. And and then at a certain point, he's, you know, negotiated this house for Dracula. And Dracula's going to now take a ship from Transylvania through the Black Sea down to England and live in London. But at this point, Jonathan Harker realizes, hey, that might not be that great for London. So I'm heading back. I'm going to rescue everybody. And then Dracula starts to get the hots for his wife. In the book, Van Helsing is this, you know, uh, Austrian professor who knows uh, about the supernatural and helps them kill the vampire. So in the in the movie, I mean, Van Helsing, did he just kind of encourage Harker he, a little well, bit? Well, at the end, Harker goes to get him when yeah. Mina, it, Nina right. is is trying to right. seduce Dracula. 
to come over. Right. So what Nina has discovered is there's a way to kill a vampire. And mm-hmm. the way is for a... Someone who is pure of heart. So she discovered that if she gives herself up willingly, he'll be somehow mesmerized. And, and compelled to stay till dawn. He'll, yeah, he'll forget to go home when the sun comes up and that'll kill him in a very... Can I ask yeah. About Van Helsing in Nosferatu. Yes. What was up with him and the Venus flytrap? Yeah, I think it's just symbolism to show just, that there are there are predators. There are natural predators, supernatural predators, whatever. So even the, in plant life. In, right. Even in plant We're life. the fly. Like, basically. like yeah. We got yeah, it. Yeah. So that I understand. Joni, yes. you're the fly. It's very weird. I Except Joni's willing and able. Yeah. Joni is a yeah. a hoe ass fly. She's willing to <laughs> I'm jump. A for a vampire. She's jumping right into the Venus flytrap. She doesn't even care. Sexy ass. Take me now. Sexy ass men. These vampires. Okay. I've got to say it. Well, well not Nosferatu. So one of the questions that I pose to the team, the vampire team, is to look at this film in the context of its time. 1922 is post-World War One by four years. Yeah, not much. So you are in the stage of German economy where they have been... T- ravaged. Ravaged because they were forced to take blame for the entirety of World War One. The scale of the retribution was... It was significant. It was punitive and it was ridiculous. Yeah. And what they did to Germany in that day and age led to the rise of Hitler. But he's zeroing in on the influence, the negative influence of foreigners. foreigners yeah. So let and me tell- also the negative influence of the Jew. That's their easy scapegoat is the Jews. One of the best ways to achieve fascism and a, uh, a dictatorship is to create an other. But it's better to create an other that is not... Uh, powerful but they didn't paint them as impotent they did not paint them oh no because you can't be scary you can't be scary if you have no power so then they said the jews bring plague the gypsies bring plague the jews jews are running the money yeah they're user usurers like the all of the scary things they put that into the zeitgeist even. <laughs> i know and fuck. that's a good german word right good german word. <laughs> and this is a very roundabout way of explaining here's why nosferatu looks like the way he does right because that is their stereotypical over-the-top demonization of jewish people right mm-hmm. they do the the hunchback the big hook nose the monstrous claws and that little hat he's the wearing. little hat he's wearing. Mm-hmm. It was an anti-Semitic film. It was pretty obvious the way, like you said, portrayed him in that stereotypical fashion of what they believed Jewish people to look like and, and behave like back then. And um, yeah, definitely. I, even I picked up on that. So. All right. So let's talk about the weirdness of this movie, because this is I mean, the funniest it is weird. thing. Okay. It's weird. And Joanne brought up one of the things that I noticed immediately, which was Mina slash Nina is constantly walking on her tiptoes. Right. That was creeping me out. Why did she do that? I'm not 100% sure, but it might be, it does add femininity. Good call. It's almost 
dirty too. I, that's what I said too. Yeah, she, Christina said that first. Yeah. She's like, "Why are her feet so dirty?" I was like, "Her oh. feet are filthy. They must." Uh, in my mind, I was like, "That soundstage must have been disgusting." disgusting. I think it's to give her a kind of a daintiness and a fragility. You know what else I found kind of interesting when what was his name Renfield, the one that was in the cell, the yep. helper. They they easily overpowered him. He is in thrall to Dracula. He is in thrall of Dracula. Yeah, but in the book he's incredibly strong. But in the in this movie, yes, he was very easily overcome. He was frail. I'm not sure what was going on there, but you know whatever. I moved the plot along. I was a vampire. There's exactly one vampire in this movie. Well, right, because he doesn't really change anybody into vampires. No, not in this movie. No. In the book, he does. Yes, in the book, he changes uh, a woman uh, into a vampire, one of uh, Mina's friends, and he's slowly changing Mina, Nina in the the movie, Mina into a vampire. There's seduction involved in that. Well, yeah, of course there is. That's how I do it. In In the book, he seduces people. In the movie, in the movie he, he doesn't menaces really much. He people. menaces people. Like, people are mesmerized by him, but not yeah. really. It doesn't feel like it's because... It's more like they're paralyzed by fear. They're fearful. Yeah. And he moves into this house across the street from their house, and Nina sees him, and she's like... And then she's reading the book, and this is what you were talking about, Joanne. It looked like she was orgasming. Yeah, but really what she's doing, and she's understanding, I've got to sacrifice myself. Ultimately, Nosferatu ends when Nina slash Mina sacrifices herself. Do you think that lends to what we were kind of talking about the one day, I don't know if it was on a podcast or just us chatting, how girls are attracted to, or women, or attracted to the bad boy. Like she kind of looked at him kind of like, I, I can fix him. No. Even though the fixing of him is him dying, but. No, but I do think that is a think fairly. Not in him. Not in this, not in this instance. No, but, I don't think that stereotype was that. But I do think that is fairly common in vampire films. In vampire films. And I think that if, honestly, I think in their heart of hearts, the women who were watching those films were saying to themselves, okay, Mm. I would sacrifice myself. If if he was a little better looking. Because this Nosferatu was really ugly. Yeah. This was not Eric Northman. No, this is not even Bella Lugosi, Uh -uh. right? And and that's because they are trying to make him out to be a bad, he's a bad, he's a bad foreign guy. He's got to be as frightening as possible. Right. So, but her sacrifice is a sacrifice on the altar of king and country or kaiser and country right we're gonna move on 1931 was dracula with bella lugosi up until this point vampires had been mostly devilish and other and that's what we were talking about monstrous and in this iteration dracula is a gothic figure of aristocracy and power so even though in nosferatu you get the idea that he's like princely and he's like got it's this got big castle. castle. Yeah. Um, he's still dirty. He still is dry. You know, claws. He's got and claws and those weird teeth. And he's the you know. But at this point, Dracula, he's empire building. He is going from Transylvania to London, and he's gonna he's gonna take it all over. And that's Dracula. And at that point, starting in the 1930s, Dracula becomes this very urbane, mysterious, seductive figure. And that remained the blueprint for a long stretch of time. All right, so 
1970s hit, and vampires get really sexy and sexual. And funky. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's talk about black exploitation. That includes Blackula. What are we watching when we watch Blackula? So Blackula was released in 1972 and was actually one of the top grossing films of that year. Mm. It starred, yeah, I couldn't believe it. It starred William Marshall as the African prince, Mama Waldi, and he also played Blackula. Thalmus Rasula as Dr. Gordon Thomas and Bonetta McGee, who played two roles as well as Luva, Mama Waldi's wife in 1780, and Tina Williams, who was Blackula's love interest in the 70s. So basically the setup is, it's about an African prince, Mama Waldi, who's invited to Transylvania in 1780 to meet with Dracula to discuss Dracula's role in the European slave movement. And they get into a disagreement and, and Mama Waldi pisses off Dracula and he gets all worked up and he, he brings him down into a cellar and throws him and, and Luva into this cellar and he puts uh, Mama Waldi in a coffin and bites him and says a curse that you will be known as Blackula. <laughs> and he seals the room and presumably the wife dies and Blackula is now sealed in this coffin. And then it flash, uh, flash forwards to the 1970s and there are uh, a gay couple who they only refer to as associates, but it's, it's quite clear they are a uh, gay couple, they are antique dealers, and they purchase Castle Transylvania, and they end up shipping all the contents of it back to L.A., and they're in their storage facility, and they open up this coffin, and, you know, they turn their back, and, of course, Blackula pops out, and he kills them, and this sets off an investigation, and that's where the doctor comes in because he's friends with one of the gentlemen that got killed, so he's investigating their murder. In the meantime, Blackula sees Tina Williams, and she is the spitting image of Luva, his his uh, wife that he lost back in hundreds of years ago. So he ultimately, you know, follows her and befriends her, and kind of the same you know, vampire story we're we're getting now. They fall in love, and the investigators start to realize that there's a vampire problem. They realize that Mama Waldy is the vampire, and uh, they hunt him down, and in the process, they didn't know that he had already turned Tina, and they accidentally stake her. And when he sees this, he's like, fuck this, I'm out. And he goes up a flight of stairs and goes out on the rooftop and exposes himself to the sun and dies. And that was pretty but much But somehow revives it. for Scream Blackula Scream. Exactly. And fun fact, because I love my fun fact. I don't know if it's happening, but last year there was major discussions in Hollywood to do a Blackula revival. Wow. I'm sure I, it will not be as exploitative. Imagine. So Yeah. Let's talk first about black exploitation. All right. So the kind of film that always jumps to mind for me is Shaft. Right. Right. Richard Roundtree. But so black exploitation mostly in the early seventies, I yep. think, was was kind of when it was. And they were trying in a very clumsy cis white way to kind of appeal to black audiences. Right. Well, it's a portmanteau that was coined in August, 1972 by Junius Griffin, who was then the president of the Beverly Hills, Hollywood NAACP branch. So he 
named it that because he claimed the genre was proliferating offenses to the black community in its perpetuation of stereotypical characters often involved in criminal activity. Right. So it was at that time a negative. You, they hired usually black cast and crew. Yeah, at least they didn't do the movies in white in blackface, right? I mean, I mean that's <laughs> well, about the best we, thing you can say about them. At least you've done the bare minimum. <laughs> yeah. You may not know this. In fact, I would bet dollars to donuts you don't. There was also Blackenstein. A black Frankenstein. But most of them were like just very, I mean, they just, it was all the stereotypical 70s black actor roles, right? Pimps and drug dealers and criminals and, uh, you know, everybody's super fly. In my opinion, and, you know, take this with a grain of salt as a, you know, middle-aged white guy, pretty horrible in general. There's a reason why they called it exploitative. So, Blackula, Joanne, what would you say is the best part of it? It, it, It's really cookie cutter, I suppose, with the exception of, you know, normally, you know, up until this point, your your vampire was white. Here he is black. And I I don't know, it definitely had some good parts. What I found the most interesting, I don't know, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't say I, I liked it. I absolutely didn't like it, but I just, I was shocked and I don't know why I'm assuming in the, you know, back in, you know, the early seventies, this was, you know, more prevalent, but they, they just really went in on, on gay people, on gay men. Mm. Um, They used homophobic slurs a lot while it's supposed to, you know, present a a strong black man as a figure, but it, it, it didn't quite meet the mark. Some of the research I did prior to it and after, because I wanted to go into it with, with some idea of what, look for and that I definitely picked up on you know there's a lot of racist elements like for example when Mama Waldi goes to meet with Dracula to get his help in the European slave trade like I said earlier not only does he refuse him he tells him to go back to the jungle Mm. so there's just you know so many different things And, and and like we talked about before about consent right and slavery and things like that it's obvious that when he turns him and locks him in there, he's enslaving him. Even though he knew that, you know, Blackula was his new name, Mama Waldi never used his slave name. He always used his given prince name. And um, he was Kunta I, I was going to say, how very roots of him. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was, you know, a, a good way for them. Because, like I said, part, I think part of it was they were trying to show um, a strong African American male lead. But as a monster, but not make him as monstery, I guess. They, they did fall flat on so many things. Like when he would go to kill, the growl that he made was just like, he's like, and that's, I've never heard any other. I do the same like thing. That. So they made oh, yeah. him more animalistic than he needed yeah. to be. And, and you know how like on the cover of the movie, he's got like those wild eyebrows, yeah. all that weird facial hair. He doesn't have it during the movie. It's only when he goes to to bite somebody. He's he's fairly an attra- he's a fairly attractive man until he turns to you know bite you, and that's that that growl, and then the facial hair comes out, and the eyebrows go like all crazy. And it's funny because the way they, they make his hairline, if you if you pay attention, his hairline kind of like widow peaks. Of course. And his eyebrows go up in a weird way. And it almost looks like his skin is a bat. 
very weird the way they did it. And it, it was just over the top with that sort of thing. And, um, you know, he can have sex, All which right. I thought was pretty cool. You up. know, because we were talking about some of our vampires that can't actually do the deed and he can. Um, obviously, he can't daywalk because he, you know, kills himself in the sun. But he, you know, in terms of some of like the old folklore, he can't be photographed, that sort of thing. And crosses freak them out. The, you show, you know, one of these vampires because he had turned a lot of people. And when you show one of them across, like they just went like bananas. They didn't die. They just like got crazy. You know, and, oh, and the other thing I want to talk about was what he wears, right? Yeah. Like he's wearing a cape. Well, so would I, honestly. It's weird. No, I know. And I know it was the 70s and it was, you know, the wild time and everything goes. But, like, nobody ever, like, looked at him kind of weird or sideways, um, you know, about that. Oh, and then another thing that, that I picked up on, you know, that kind of related, that I found interesting. They're, when they're talking about, because the, the two antique dealers, the two gay men, one was black, one was white. When Dr. Thomas, he says to the police officer who he's kind of friends with, he said, well, you know, who was investigating the case? And he said, so-and-so. And he goes, oh, well, you know, white cops just don't care about black victims. Something to that. That's not a direct quote, but something to that effect. Yeah, and that's not a new that, phenomenon. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. But I'm saying like, but I, I've never watched a movie, you know, where it kind of was integrated in it, I guess. And I just found that to be kind of telling and disturbing because here we are 40, 50 years later and we're no better. Was the then, mu- was you know, the soundtrack it. at least good? You know, I thought it was going to be like Shaft with Vampire yeah, Teeth. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. No, it, that was a little disappointing. Too early um, for that, I guess. Yeah, I get maybe. Listen, maybe if they do a remake of it, we'll get a little bit more like uh, that. Let's with hope. Music. Yeah, let's hope they don't. Even just the name, Blackula. I mean, I know it's a poor man's toe. Yeah, it's I a poor man's toe. It. Portman's toe. That's what I call it, Christina. Gets no, so I like mad. I like poor man's toe. I think that's it's what we're going to call it. It was icky in terms of yeah. the homophobia, the isn't it, racism. Isn't it strange when you go back and watch these older movies? Yeah, go watch Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which we did Archie for our, yeah for our other for our other podcast, and we're like, mm-hmm. and they make you know, and they use gay slurs, and we're like, oh my god, you know who does that? Well, guess what? Everybody did that, you know, and that's yeah. horrible, but that's just the times, and it's it, it's interesting. And I they, think they use the n word in the movie. Oh, too, I have you know? zero was, doubt of I that. Fully yeah, which I fully expected that because of the the period of it and things like that. And I mean, people use that in, in movies now, you know, but I, I don't know why I was not expecting the homophobic slurs. I, yeah. I just didn't, I didn't go into it really looking like, okay, you know, what, what were the, you know, hot topics of the 70s? Right. What were people against? What were they for? I just went in looking to have a good time and it was Not a good time. No, it wasn't a good time. What I did, you know, I did like the, the part I like about all of this and what we're doing is the different, like, kind of, you know, the evolution of the vampire, the, yeah. the different powers that some of them have versus, you know, others and, you know, versus what today we have. So I liked that they did, you know, play into, like I said, that, you know, folklore of you can't photograph them and the crosses. They didn't, you know, I was waiting next. I was waiting for like holy water to be thrown. Yeah, right. The process for for turning them is simply just biting them. 
that's it. You drain their blood, boom, they're a vampire. That's how I do it. Um, So, um, so so far, interestingly, the two movies we've talked about have really served the purpose of perpetuating stereotypes, right? Absolutely. So we're going to demonize the Jews in the first movie. We're going to demonize black people and gay people in the second movie. God, what's next? You guys, we're going to wrap up here and we are going to carry this over into a second episode because we have a lot of material here. Um, So, Joanne, would you like to take us out of this episode? Thank you to everybody that continue to listen to us week after week, participate on our Twitter page, engage in our polls. This has really been a lot of fun and we're just getting started. So keep listening, keep sharing us with your friends. And if you want to join in on the fun on Twitter, our podcast Twitter is at vampire underscore insider. And you are welcome to follow each of us on our personal accounts. Christina is at Christina Gen X. Mark is at Mark Eat Peach. And I am at just block me underscore one. Thank you again and hope you guys all have a wonderful night.